0: Look at a lot of really, truly innovative startups that have got the potential to change the world. It's not the meek and mild, sensible sandwiches who are running it, you know? You've got to have a little bit of crazy.
1: Welcome to Crawford Media. My name is Hal Crawford. Today, I'm talking to Lisa Watts, the boss of The Conversation in Australia and New Zealand. The Conversation is the university news hybrid that began 10 years ago right here. The model of using subject matter experts to explain the issues behind the news has been a big success around the world. And I wanted to talk to Lisa about their method and business model. During the course of the interview, we talk about something called a CMS. CMS stands for Content Management System, and it's the software at the heart of all digital publishing businesses. I have a bit of a thing for CMSs, although no one else seems to, You see, they're just so important, and you spend so much of your time interacting with them. Anyway, I thought I'd explain what they were exactly before we get into the conversation.
0: I'm Lisa Watts. I'm the CEO of Conversation Media Group, which is the world's leading news and analysis website from experts within the university sector.
1: And Lisa, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about, that that world-leading nature of the site. And one, because we all like a bit of parochial Australian and New Zealand accomplishment, and and the other because I really wanted to explore with you the model and why the conversation has worked. I don't know where to start, but maybe, maybe you could just explain what the site is.
0: So it's a collaboration between professional journalists who we higher so that that's the team and they basically operate just like a normal newsroom with daily news conferences and rounds and areas of sort of specialist topics that they're got sort of familiarity with and those journalists those editors commission articles from university experts so if they're on the solid tech technology desk they will have got up in the morning and listened to the news, read policy briefings, looked at journal articles, and just scoured every sort of nook and cranny for what, whatever news is out there, and have, they would have also received a lot of pictures and a lot of information coming in from experts and from universities themselves. And then they'll basically thrash out those ideas, and within the usually a pretty short time timeframe, couple of hours, um, sometimes a bit longer, depending on what it is, they would have found an expert who's got expertise in that area, is available to do the piece, and they will co-author or or co-edit a piece together. And so it's that sort of translation of academic expertise into something that's really accessible for the public. That's that's what we do.
1: And effectively, how does that work? Is it more the writing of the journalist or and editor or is it more the writing of the academic?
0: Look, it really depends. I mean, some academic researchers are just professional communicators and they're amazing writers. And in that case, it's much more about just shaping the idea at the beginning and agreeing on a format. And some pieces might require, you know, somewhat light editing. Others, you know, are much more interventionist because it might be a highly technical area or an area that's full of sort of complexity or stuff that, you know, normal citizens would find baffling. And so it really um, is going to vary depending on the subject matter and the area. So if it's a sort of, you know, piece that has been written from a journal article that's about some kind of complicated idea in physics, it might take a bit longer.
1: Case in point, I I might just bring up a really concrete example from this morning and I I think this is one thing that, that the conversation does really well which is take matters that are extremely topical and then write explainers about them and in this case it was nuclear submarines and what does that mean and how does the, you know, how do they work, how are they nuclear and I just really enjoyed this article. So it doesn't have the name of the editor or the journalist on there
0: Yes, that's right. So the byline is always the academic. Right. And, you know, that that article would have been turned around fairly quickly as soon as that news broke. So they, it was a, a sort of fast-moving story. And it's a good example where an explanatory piece right at the right time, it was edited by Michael Hopkin, who's our sort of science and technology editor. He's based in Perth. And he would have found the author, A.J. Mitchell, from ANU. It's the first time that academics written for us. So it might just be that, that that fellow is an expert in nuclear-powered submarines and it's finally now his time to shine. So he's got a PhD in nuclear, phys- in nuclear physics from the University of Manchester and then he's done a postdoctoral appointment at another university and now he's a research fellow at, with nuclear physics at ANU. So he's the perfect person to write that explainer. And the beauty about us being able to get that out same day Lead the website with it put it in the newsletter is for other media who are also writing stories because all of the work we do is nonprofit for the public good it's free for anyone to use reprint and free for all other media to, to use in their publications they can take that in full or edit a part of it with some permissions and use it as a sort of resource for their own stories A lot of other media will use conversation articles. Many, many, most articles are republished in full somewhere in the world. But a lot of producers, radio producers or other sort of news producers will want to do their own versions of it, in which case they might just do a full rewrite where they don't need permission at all. They might just reference, you know, as quoted in and do their own story. But if they want to use the story but edit it down, they just need to get in touch with the academic author, which is easy to do on our site because we've got a, a contact feature, and
1: then they can get permission to, to do a different version. So it's a fascinating model. So how big is your team?
0: Uh, the team in Australia is pretty small. It's only about 46 of us. Australia New Zealand so it's not a, a huge team globally there's a couple of hundred in so in, in fact in terms of the sort of footprint of the as a as a news entity as a as a journalistic enterprise it's 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 a pretty good size if you look at the the global reach
1: mm. so so take me back it was I've sort of read a, a sketchy history of 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 the conversation and I think the idea started doing, doing the doing rounds in 2009 and the site launched in 2010 is that right
0: yeah, the site really launched and sort of got going a few years, up, that, that's right, in Australia. And then two years after that, there was a launch in in London, and then the US and then a, a range of others sort of followed. But So I joined about a month after the launch, and it was amazing, really, that the two co-founders, both of whom have um, left the project, really just like true entrepreneurs, just battled away. Particularly Andrew Jasmine, whose idea it was in the beginning. He's a very sort of visionary, sort of highly energetic, you know, quite one of a kind in so many ways. He was able to really persuade the right people to invest in the idea, set it up as a nonprofit, and he'd already raised the initial funding by the time I joined the project. Mm. So it was quite sort of a compelling idea because I sort of couldn't believe that no one had ever done it. It was such a simple, idea to pair up a journalist with an academic and write articles leveraging all that expertise and
1: well then and- that's exactly it isn't it it seems like a no-brainer in hindsight i suppose at the beginning it wasn't a proven thing at all did you have to go around um proving to people that it would work
0: yeah constantly the um editors the journalists here yeah, were basically doing phone calls hi you know particularly before it actually went live, nothing to point to, you know, we want you to write for free for a website that has no audience, that hasn't launched yet, and having to explain the model, even when it was sort of, you know, in its early first year.
1: Was the response, what do
0: I get out of it? Look, we, we, we had a part of the pitch was really very much about, about trying to inject intelligent expertise and, and fact-based information into the media ecosystem. And like, I think everybody wanted that. So it was a pretty easy argument in a way, particularly when we were looking at issues like climate change, the environment, energy, you know, taxation policy, things that, you know, citizens sort of cared about. I think people could see, oh wow, this could be really good, particularly because we would describe it to the academics as a safe publishing platform. where that, they, they sign off on the final edit. It can't go live without their final approval. They can only write in their area of expertise, full disclosures, full transparency. So it gives them a lot of confidence because a lot of academics at that time were sort of finding that dealing with mainstream media was getting really challenging because this was before The Guardian and before New Daily and before a whole lot of other sites, you know, Schwartz Media hadn't got going in any real way there. So there was really limited outlets for, you know, for debate and discussion. And increasingly, the sort of sexed up headline clickbait stuff was going crazy and academics i think were finding it a pretty poor experience because all the the senior journalists that had been working for you know what was then fairfax but the nine papers and and even news to some extent you know the the very good experienced journalists who knew science or knew health or knew about the education you know they had deep years and years of knowledge they'd all taken their redundancy packages or or well, were about to in
1: 2012. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: And then it was they were being replaced by generalists who were generally having to file, you know, do print and digital, you know, do a headline, find a picture, do the whole thing. And so the speed to get a piece done was much, you know, there was all this productivity measures brought in to newsrooms to kind of be more productive, be more efficient as the sort of business model collapsed around it. And so the experience was pretty poor for a lot of academics because they do an interview and they then they would think, oh, how bad is this going to be?
1: That's fascinating. That the rise of the conversation coincided with the loss of expertise. Probably high point around 2012 with the big redundancies at, at News and, and Fairfax.
0: Yeah, that's right. It, it took off straight away. It, it was sort of instant, almost that there was an audience gathering around it. And so, you know, we were sort of quite staggered, I think, at the time to see, oh, wow, there's a there's an appetite for this. There really is a a strong um, interest from the general public to have an alternative news source that cuts through, you know, that doesn't do sport weather, murders, car crashes, that kind of stuff. And look, it doesn't do the sort of reporting around, you know, courts and,
1: you know, who's done what to whom. It's a fascinating model because in specialising in the type of journalism that you do, if say you would compare yourself to an original publisher, you have cut out the stuff that's expensive and commodified like court reporting, crime, or, you know, all of this sort of stuff that is hard to generalise and has a very short shelf life and yeah. you've gone straight to the stuff that is higher value but let let me just ask you about your involvement so you've said that Andrew Jaspin was a pretty big character and i read that into what happened and how he exited did he recruit you were, were, was that the connection
0: yeah it was i was introduced to andrew and I, I was at the time i was ceo of arts hub i don't know if you know arts hub but it's a it's the news and sort of jobs website for people working in performing arts and, and right. visual arts industries. And prior to that, I was at Fairfax Digital running one of the classified online businesses called My Career, which was the employment employment site at, at Fairfax at the time. And so one of the jobs I had at Fairfax Digital, because we were based in Melbourne, was to do a little bit of initial due diligence to for internet startups or other sorts of digital companies that wanted an exit. And when Andrew told me the idea, I was like, I was just blown away by it. And he's a persuasive character in any case. He's a very sort of highly motivating force of nature. And he told me the idea, I was like staggered that no one had done it. And I just thought, yeah, I want to be part of it.
1: So what what were the forces working against it? You know, it happened here in Australia, but it hadn't happened really properly anywhere else around the world. So there must have been something Causing it not to happen. Is that right?
0: Yeah, look, it's funny because it's 10 years on now. This is our 10th year of operation. And against all odds, the Australian edition is still the biggest in terms of its size, scale, success, brand recognition, and impact. Now, that's a pretty bold statement because, look, it's still really successful in other places. But by now, I would have thought that in the UK and the US, for example, that they would be four or five times the size of Australia in terms of what it's done. Now, you know, there's lots of reasons where you can point to for that, but it's become, it, 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 it built, it took a share of the market in Australia that I think only happens when you've got lack of competition, that sort of media domination, particularly by the Murdoch press,
1: where so much is dominated by, by news. So you were immediately convinced by Andrew's vision and were you convinced by him personally?
0: Yeah, I think it takes someone like him to make something like this happen. I think if you look at a lot of really truly innovative startups that are kind of got the potential to change the world, it's not the meek and mild, sensible sandwiches who are running it. You know, it's you've got to have a little bit of crazy.
1: mm. mm. You went on and, and expanded around the world. I think, the, as you mentioned, the UK edition was first. Now, how does that work? Would you call it a franchise? And if so, what are the rules of the franchise?
0: The, the Conversation Media Group, which is an Australian company, it licences through a contract, through agreements, another company, they're all non-profits, in a particular geographic territory. So TC UK set itself up two years after Australia, and that's a a charity that has a board of trustees, it has a CEO and an editor, an editorial team, and the board over there are all, you know, amazing people from media and university world, and they essentially operate, they have to raise their own money, they are responsible for the relationships with all the universities, they're really responsible for their own fortune in many ways. There's no sort of centralised pool of cash that we're sitting on. People raise their own funds through philanthropic endeavours or business models. The thing that ties us together is the technology, the brand, the charter, the ethos, the editorial guidelines, all this stuff that sort of um, binds us together. And, and that ensures a really high level of collaboration and compliance because we're all working off one big website that is all run here in Australia.
1: It's, it's a unified CMS hosted w- from Australia.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the physical hosting, the servers are ones in France and ones in Canada. But yeah, the, the whole tech team um, works here in Australia. It's an Australian invention. So
1: mm. is, are your developers part of that team of 46 you mentioned? Yeah. How, how many developers have you got? Six. I did note with interest that you had developed the CMS in-house. Was that a decision or did you just stumble into that?
0: There was, I think, a view that if you were really going to build something unique, it's about that collaboration. So it was not possible just to get an off-the-shelf sort of WordPress-type CMS, even a, a good one, because what really ended up being built and now iterated on multiple times is a quite unique CMS where the editor and the academic work together in real time on the one piece, a bit like a Google Doc. They can see each other's edits, which means that they can write really quickly together and really Mm. collaborate. And there's also some really neat features that are like, there's a a readability index, which is set to age 16, that has traffic lights. So if there's too much jargon, the sentences are too long, or the syllables within the words are too long, you get a, a red light. And then as you improve the readability, simplify, make it much more accessible and clear Then you get a green light. And when you get a green light, you're uh, able to publish. And that was important because part of what we're trying to do is work with academic experts to translate for an educated 16-year-old and plus. So it was important to kind of, I think, make that innovation sort of a key part of it. The, The other big part of what we do and part of the reason why the business model works is we provide a lot of analytics and data, dashboards and metrics back to partners to demonstrate impact. And if you're an academic writing, because you know it's part of your civic duty to participate in society and share your expertise, it's nice for you to get a really cool dashboard where you can see what the engagement of your article is, where it's been picked up in other media, how many reads it's had on the ABC and What's the latest uh,
1: sort of Twitter exchange that you can all see in one big dashboard? Yeah. Now you've just brought up about a million things that I, w- I want to ask you more about. But the first thing I'm going to ask you is that traffic light system. You indicated that you are not allowed to publish until you get a green light. How how many uh, requests have you had to override the uh, override that system?
0: Generally speaking, I think most academics really want to get their pieces to the widest possible audience and. You know, right now, if you looked out across Australia um, and New Zealand, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Year 12 student who hasn't used the conversation in an article in a classroom setting. It's used extensively in classrooms for for all sorts of things and and, and in higher education as well, as well as, you know, I mean, I think it's something like 15% of people who read the conversation regularly work in health, for example. So, you know... Doctors, clinicians, researchers, GPs, all sorts of people. So, and then, you know, you also want the information to be relevant to someone who's working in hairdressing having a discussion with a, a client about vaccination. I think people are pretty motivated to simplify and make it accessible.
1: So it sounds like the incentives of all parties are aligned, but they're never perfectly aligned, are they? So you've got academics writing for you, you've got your own staff of developers and editors, and then you've got the universities who sponsor you. What's in it for the universities?
0: Universities are increasingly wanting to demonstrate their place in the world. And part of being a publicly funded university is demonstrating to government, in our case in Australia, that the investment is a good one arguably they haven't been able to do that with this current government because the funding has been um, less than what most universities would consider to be uh, to be good right now but i think if you talk to most vice chancellors most of them have a, a strong uh, well the reason that they're doing what they're doing is because they want to improve society they see the university as a, a important Player in 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 civil improvement and in in having a stronger um, and safer and healthier and, and better world that we're going to live in, and so where you have a a, a vice chancellor who believes in that who believes in you know c- civil responsibility and the pu- the public's interest being served by expertise, it's it's very easy to have the support. We have all Australian. Universities signed up as members right now. Occasionally, we have ones that come and go. We've got one who's on a pause at the moment, who's hoping to come back. That's Adelaide. Everyone else is a a current member, so our retention rate's been, you know, always been higher than ninety-five percent.
1: Now, I read your annual report, but what was missing for me was the numbers around the finances. Could you share Mm -hmm. any of those with us? How how much does it cost to keep you afloat?
0: So approximately six million in Australia. Once you take profit away and once you step out of a place where you're about shareholder value and you're only working in the, in the idea space and you're all you're trying to do is, is share knowledge and get it to the widest possible audience, it means you can do amazing things with a lot less money. And so we have a, a relatively small newsroom. But each one of those editors is able to collaborate with, you know, a number of academics each day, and so you've got some inbuilt scale in the model, because we're able to uh, support those academics, write with them, you know, commission their work, edit their work, and the output is much greater than it would be if we were just doing it as a single
1: journalist. What is the output?
0: Somewhere between three and four hundred a month.
1: On the behalf of the academics, you mentioned that one of the rewards might be a sense of public good in, in getting their ideas out there, but there must be some self-interest involved as well.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And look, what happens after a academic gets published is really interesting because most academics get followed up by other media. So you know that that's really important. So I think it's something like. 68% get contacted by um, a journalist after they write because if you're running, if you're a producer on a, a radio, you know, particularly if you're say, in regional Australia somewhere, they're really using the conversation at a high level because the story is already current, fact checked. You know that it's going to be a very quick and efficient way to get to the right person straight away for comment. And because that academic has just written the piece, they've sort of self-selected into to be available to engage, it's a bit like they put their hand up and said, yes I'm participating, I'm able to take comment from for this issue. And I think about ten percent get contacted by government after after writing, twenty percent go on to have some sort of research collaboration from other researchers who might read the piece, and about fourteen percent get contacted by business for some sort of business collaboration. look. Academia right now, and the university sector in Australia right now, it's under extreme pressure. It's really a tough place to be in. The number of faculties and schools and departments that have had to close or radically slash is disturbing, and they're in a world of pain. In fact, all last year we were having lots of discussions with the universities about their fees and and how it would go. We put a lot of effort into doing whatever we can to support them and make sure that they can be with us for the long term. But what we've found is that in, well, in all cases apart from one, we've been able to retain the support. And I think people see the conversation now as sort of a part of doing business, part of the sort of you know normal public engagement activities that a university would do. So, So that's good. Mm. The other challenge for us is a good one, actually, which is just, because the audience is so big and because academics really want to publish, our um, number of pitches that we get from academics who would like to write far exceeds our capacity to commission. And because we're doing explanatory journalism tied to the news cycle, providing you know a more in-depth look at what's happening around us, we can't always take stuff off pitch that is not directly tied to a
1: news hook. And that's a tough one because we're saying no way more than we're saying yes. What's your position on opinion within the conversation?
0: Informed perspectives on issues that people have done research in. Uh, quite often you'll see pieces like that in the conversation where if there's a contentious or interesting issue, we might find someone who, whose academic work is tied to that issue. What we don't tend to do is if you're a geologist, you can't go and talk about the um, nuclear submarines. Mm. Or if you're a sort of, if you happen just to be an academic and you have a strong view about something, um, you won't get published if it's not in your area of expertise. Mm. So, that extends to, we're not here to lobby on behalf of the university sector and we don't have lots of articles from university leadership about the funding situation, for example.
1: Now, something I didn't ask you before but uh, really wondered about is how you measure performance. And I, in, in this respect, I'm wondering if you see yourself as competitors for attention with you know, other public media like the ABC. How do you know you're doing a good job?
0: So we've got a lot of uh, measures and goals and strategic pillars and all that sort of stuff. We definitely are very interested to know what kind of share and attention we're getting compared to other media but we definitely don't see ourselves as competing in any meaningful way particularly because we don't have a subscription or advertising model our model is really about making sure that our university partners are secure our philanthropic funders are able to see the impact of contributions that they make to our work and that we've got Individual readers who care enough about what we're doing to become voluntary donors. So, if we can get those things working well,
1: and that's a measure of success too, if those things sort of go up, we know we're doing a good job. Is audience still increasing in Australia and New Zealand?
0: Yeah, it is. It's definitely went through that incredible doubling, you know, about a year and a half ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, stabled off. and then we, we got up, I think, to about 12 million a month on site. And now we're back down to sort of nine but it's stabilised. So it hasn't sort of, it's not sort of growing at the same rate it did sort of around the sort of peak of COVID
1: coverage. Have you never been tempted to um, put a bit of, you know, tasteful advertising on site?
0: No, never. No.
1: <laughs> no. Is it is it forbidden in one of the founding edicts somewhere?
0: No, it's not. We've said in our charter that any advertising will be, I think it says unobtrusive and, you know, relevant or whatever. It's not, it's not that there's any sort of problem with it. It's just eh, anything that distracts a reader from immediately engaging in the idea we're trying to get across is sort of op- the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. We, we do take sponsorship advertising in our daily newsletter. So we're pretty fussy about what we say yes to. It's just, and it's not programmatic, it's just a a sponsorship
1: for that week. What about marketing the conversation? I would imagine the content is your main marketing device and then the sharing of the content is another big boost, but do you ever take out any other form of marketing?
0: Look, it's just so interesting. We have done a little bit of campaign stuff online, mostly trying to convert. Our our whole objective is to get people to sign up to our daily newsletter. That's the sort of action. So, you know, the free daily newsletter, that's our sort of conversion point. And we've done a, a little bit of that, trying to convert people who are already engaging with the brand on
1: social media, for example, to become newsletter subscribers, which has been you know pretty successful. Now, Lisa, what about yourself? Do you come from an academic background?
0: No, I don't. I come from a sort of digital bl- management marketing media background so a long time ago f- i worked at yellow pages online classifieds mm. which was sort of that was my first sort of that's where i sort of grew up i guess it was like when i first had a, a career type job and i ended up being a manager at quite a young age really it was extremely fortunate that i was able to get into a culture of like the Yellow Pages world, which was sort of a bit cultish at the time. It was an extremely successful business. I ended up being regional sort of marketing manager or a regional sales manager where I had $110 million of revenue and about 40 people, a big corner office overlooking the beautiful Yarra. I mean, I really loved it and I was good at it and it was competitive, like really super competitive. You know, we had incentive trips where you got to go on an amazing incentive trip every year, to, you know, take someone along and Paris, Rome, that kind of stuff. And it was all about rankings and who was at the top and the bottom 30% would sort of be turned over each year. It's all about just sort of, you know, winning basically. And so if you're a sort of person who likes that kind of go, 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 it's it's sort of like landing in the perfect environment.
1: Is that, is that you?
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is.
1: And you are you are you there for the foreseeable? Are you are you ensconced? You're not moving anywhere. Ah,
0: look, it's funny. I mean, it's interesting. It's sort of ruined me and a few of my
1: colleagues here for other
0: jobs in a way. You know, when you work for something that's just about the mission, it's just it, it's a very different beast because you're you're getting up every day. You're constantly talking about what you're trying to achieve for other people, and you know. I've been used to more commercial places, you know, and so I've got a lot of friends who work in prop tech or edutech and those sorts of businesses. And in the end, I think, yeah, of course, I'll, I mean, I'll do something else at some point, surely. But I think it comes down to what kind of people you want to hang out with.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I guess to a large extent, you've had a chance to shape your own environment as the uh, the boss. Yeah. So just bringing it back to the conversation and something I'm really interested in, funding of, of public interest journalism, funding of of these important flows of information are really, really central to the future, I think. The conversation is a kind of uh, new form of, of public media. Do you see it that way?
0: Yes, I do. I think that's a, an accurate way to talk about it.
1: And in that case, can the model be extended beyond academia or can your... You know, you're you're serving close to 10 million people, uh, Australians and New Zealanders, every month, which is a lot. But can the model be expanded? We've had a
0: lot of uh, sort of discussions and, and interests from lots of people who might want to have a sort of membership-based model for things. I think it depends on, for example, you you, you could look at, you know, industry associations or local government or other sort of stakeholders who, who have an interest in public, you know, the public being well served by good journalism. So then people sort of coming together and making a financial contribution to the production of good quality journalism because their immediate constituents or, or stakeholders or, you know, citizens will be advantaged by it. It could work. It's really hard to do collaborations. It almost takes an outsider to come in, like I reckon the conversation mm-hmm. wouldn't have worked if it had started at one university in earnest and that university had retained ownership of it and said, Oh, here we are at Melbourne Uni, it's our thing, but you can join us. I don't think that would have worked. I think it would have fractured by now and others would have competed with it. And it's just sort of it's very hard to collaborate. You almost need someone sort of separate to come in and say, Let's 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 build this thing. It's it's for everyone. So it's it's possible to do i think you just have to think about where the value exchanges flow and the hard thing is um if you can do it in a way that is truly non-profit it's much much easier once you start to think about who gets an advantage from it you lose all that goodwill and scale because people can see a dollar getting made they think well where's my bit of the dollar i'm putting in that bit in the value chain I deserve a bit too,
1: and it's very hard to to make it work with money I think. Lisa, that has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Oh such a pleasure. Anytime how Thanks for listening. I really love making these podcasts. My thanks to Kevin McLeod also for the podcast music. Bye for now.